down a threat to decency and humanity. Last week, along with cocaine, what is it today? It's more in one small country. It is a big idea. Because of oppression, has new Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to conclude our series on the secret history of the world that you were never taught. Tonight, part four, the Aryan Invasion. We're going to be reading once again from an obscure book written by Dr. A.S. Rawley, titled The Shepherd of Men, an official commentary on the sermon of Hermes Trismegistus. Now, Dr. Raleigh was the Hierophant of the Mysteries of Isis, and he was also the official scribe of the Hermetic Brotherhood. He was a very knowledgeable individual. He knew an awful lot of things. He had access to an awful lot of the secret works of the Hermetic Brotherhood. And he put this volume down for some of his students. And this is a history unlike what we have been taught in school. This goes back, reaches back into antediluvian times and talks about Atlantis. Just as a recap of where we've been already in this series, we started with the remnants of Atlantis and how they settled into the Yucatan region and became the culture known as the Mayas. And from there, they spread out to numerous portions of the world. And the last place where we left off here, they had settled on the western side of South and Central America, and spread from there across the Pacific Ocean into regions of Asia. And this civilization that they cultivated and formed there were known as the Nagas. And they venerated certain serpent gods in much of the tradition. And this ties back to the worship of Quetzalcoatl, and the feathered serpent god of the cultures of the Maya. And of course, these were symbols. These were symbols to this culture. But something got lost in translation through the decades and through the millennia and the centuries that passed. And a lot of things had happened, as we had discussed here, where civilizations were cut off from one another by certain catastrophes that happened, the thing that finally destroyed the remnants of Atlantis, this cataclysm, this great flood, made the Atlantic impassable for quite a number of years. So these different branches of this civilization that settled in certain regions lost touch with one another and developed their own types of cultures, and this we had discussed in the previous episodes here. And where we left off was in the Asian settlements with this civilization known as the Nagas, how they had settled in various places there and how much of the culture 
that came about in India and other portions of Asia there. The influence of the Hindus and the Buddhists in the Orient had come from this Naga race. This civilization that called themselves the Nagas. And of course we've seen other legends spring up around the notion of the Nagas. And of course it relates back to this feathered serpent. And the Nagas were said to be mythological beings or not even necessarily mythological beings but beings that were said to have existed in antediluvian times and that they were serpent people. Now did this mean they were literal humanoid reptilians? I don't know. I can't make that claim, but there are some people who have put that kind of research out there and said this may be what was being talked about with the serpent in the Garden of Eden, because it does say in the biblical story of the Garden of Eden, the serpent, he did at one time have legs, at least, and that was part of his punishment for tempting Eve and bringing about the fall of mankind. He lost his legs and was doomed to slither around on the ground. At least that's the biblical story we get. And is there more symbolism involved in that? Hard to say for certain. Was there really a race of reptilian beings? Humanoid reptilian beings that populated the earth? I don't know. Seems like a bit of a stretch. And, of course, we're getting this from the secret schools, talking about these were a group of people descended from the Atlanteans who settled in Asia, and they adopted this cultus of the serpent based upon the cosmology of the Mayan culture, which were the direct descendants of the remnants of Atlantis. And through the course of time, many of these ideas became convoluted, and we wind up with the stuff we have today, especially when it comes in terms of the occult and the various teachings thereof and the supernatural. And then you get the crossover with the UFO crowd, and then we have this notion of reptilian humanoid beings. Is there something to it? Maybe, maybe not. I can't say for certain. But what we do have here is the claim, according to the Hermetic Brotherhood, who has kept records, secret records, for a very long time, that when they're talking about Nagas, they're talking about this group of people who settled in those portions of Asia. And we're going to see where some of the things may have become convoluted here as we continue on, because we're going to read the final chapter in this book, tonight, and we're going to close it out with that in this study of this secret history that you were never taught. And certainly it goes back much deeper than just this little portion we've talked about here, and I will explore some of those thoughts on future programs here. There's so much that we don't know about our past, and there's so many records that have been kept by these occult fraternities and these secret society groups that we're not taught. They have, allegedly, this knowledge of these civilizations that were here before, prior to the advent of modern humanity. They claim 
that Atlantis was this last great civilization here before the rise of modern man. And prior to Atlantis, they claim, were the Lemurians. And a lot of these things cross a lot of different bounds of mythology, and sometimes they seem counter to what we've been taught in our modern way of thinking. But certainly, these records have existed and have stood the test of time and have been passed down by the various occult fraternities. And they all seem to align on certain ideas, but most of the time we have never heard about much of any of it, much like this that we're talking about tonight. And things that are happening in the modern age begin to make a little more sense when you can view history through this lens of observation. Things begin to align a little more clearly for us. Things begin to look a little bit more understandable as to how we got to where we are today. Because when you take into consideration that there are people in positions of power in this world that may have been hiding this information from us for a long time and acting on this information in certain ways, things begin to make a little more sense. You see, everything's not just a big old coincidence like they would want you to believe. It's really not. Much of this stuff has been planned for a very long time. So without further ado, let's get into this, because tonight, the Aryan Invasion. 5,000 years ago, there was a party of Aryan barbarians who left their Bactrian home and entered India. They first entered the Punjab, and there established their home on the banks of the Saraswati, then a tributary to the Indus. From the time of their first arrival, these barbarians began a war of conquest on the cultured and spiritual Nagas. These were the barbarians who later on became the Hindus, a race that has ever been characterized by its barbarism, falsehood, materialism, and mental mediocrity, and above all things, its religious intolerance. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks, just to point out this is the viewpoint of the Hermetic Brotherhood and of Dr. Raleigh. This is not my opinion I'm stating. This is not me. This is what they teach and what they believe. So if you hear a hint of racism of sorts in some of this, that's because these viewpoints and attitudes have permeated the secret schools from time immemorial and they still reside within those occult fraternities. You see, a lot of this stuff comes from somewhere. And we've pointed out in the past some of where it comes from. A lot of it ties directly to Rosicrucianism. And Rosicrucianism ties directly to this Hermetic Brotherhood. So we have these same core ideas resonating here. And you'll notice that they term these Aryan peoples as barbarians. And we'll see, perhaps as we get through this, how things have kind of been flipped and turned upside down in the modern era as to perhaps what the thought processes of some groups in this world have been. But let's not put the cart before the horse, proverbially speaking. 
Let's get back to it here. <coughs> At the time of their entry into India, these barbarians had no religion aside from the crude form of nature worship and the practice of magic. Their first gods were Varuna, who meant space, Duyas, who meant the bright sky, and Rudra, who meant the sun. However, we must not make the mistake of assuming that Rudra was the same as Quetzalcoatl or Ra. The latter was the universe in its metaphysical aspect, as the process of creative evolution, of which the sun was merely the symbol, and he was never the sun, but at all times the man of the sun, when conceived in the solar sense. The Aryan barbarians were not far enough evolved to conceive of anything so abstract as this metaphysical conception, and to them Rudra was the physical sun as the giver of light to the world. Their trinity was, therefore, space as the source of all activity, the sun as the vehicle of light, and the bright sky as the physical manifestation of the light diffused by the sun. From this... It is to be seen that they worshipped physical light, and nothing higher than this. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. And I think I tend to disagree with this account of things. I don't think that necessarily this group of people were so primitive and backward that they couldn't conceive of something abstract, like symbolism that they didn't understand that these were symbols, that these were not actual... the actual physical manifestation of God in this way. Or gods. I don't think they were that backwards. But of course, you see, this is the brush that certain people groups have been painted with by these occult fraternities. So what they're claiming here is this is the external type of manifestation of this cult of the serpent or cult of the sun, this solar worship, the solar phallic worship that's gone on, that's claimed that these primitive cultures partook of by many mainstream historians. This is, I think, where the notion comes in. And this is where we have the separation between what's called the exoteric and the esoteric as far as interpretations of the various symbols that are used in their storytelling and the motifs. So I think there's some obfuscation going on with this. I don't necessarily buy that this particular group of people that they refer to as barbarians were necessarily that primitive and backwards that they couldn't possibly understand because, you see, according to what's been said here, they were not that evolved yet spiritually. So there's this connotation that one racial group is more spiritually evolved than another. And we've discussed this before, that this is what these secret society groups believe and what they teach. So essentially what's said here is they, these Aryan barbarians, according to Dr. Raleigh here, and according to the Hermetic Brotherhood, they worshipped physical light and nothing higher than that. Light. Well, who else do we have in this world that seems obsessed with more light? Oh, 
That's the Freemasonic fraternity. But of course, they'll claim that they understand the nuance that the light is a symbol for something higher. They don't actually go seeking after physical light. Let's continue reading here because I think Dr. Raleigh gets into some distinctions here as to some of the hidden esoteric meanings that are held by the secret schools here. As light and fire are very closely connected, these primitive people conceived of Agni, or fire, as the other pole of light. That is, activity of Rudra manifested not only as visibility, but also as heat. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're hitting on something. So these people were so primitive that they couldn't understand the nuance of symbolism, but they could certainly understand this notion of the visible and the invisible. They can understand the distinction between fire and the flame. The flame being the visible for portion of the fire, the heat being the invisible portion. It doesn't stand a reason to think that they could understand this conception, but they couldn't understand the concept that the sun in the sky or the physical light was a symbol for something else. <laughs> I don't buy it. But this is what they push. This is how they sell their points here. And it doesn't align with common sense at all. But let's continue on. So he is breaking down an important distinction here that's understood in the secret schools and that they do teach a little bit about. After all, they are the philosophers of fire. So let's read on. So, However, we must not make the mistake of assuming that they had the conception of divine fire. Gonna pause again. Okay, so now they understood the difference between fire and the flame, but they didn't understand divine fire, the symbolic thing that this physical symbol represents. Let's read on. This fire was purely physical, though they did have the conception of the latent fire in space, which was manifested as the visible fire. Again, they conceived of this fire in nature manifesting as Indra, the lightning or a celestial electricity. There was also the personification of the four elements, one of which was Agni. The Maruts, or storm winds, were also supposed to be the atmospheric reflection of an etheric principle, so that the Mar Maruts were worshipped as gods. The light was also supposed to differentiate itself into diverse forces, some of which acted creatively and were called divas, or bright ones, that is, lights, and others which worked destructively and were called asuras, which later on became the devils. going to pause for a moment here, folks. If you've been listening to this program for any length of time, you may recall we went through a little bit about some of these notions, the ideas of divas or the bright ones or the shining ones and the asuras, which always seem to turn up in various of these studies, especially if you get into the works of Rudolf Steiner. He spoke of the asuras. These always seem to align in conjunction with the notion of Araman, of Sorat, the Ashuras in the works of Rudolf Steiner. 
But of course, let's see how the Hermetic Brotherhood describes some of these things. And these, of course, come from some of the Eastern terminology and some of Eastern occultism. These terms, which in Western culture we would essentially identify these as probably lesser angels or lesser demons or some such thing, devils, in these types of terms. But uh, let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here. Through the process of personification, which is characteristic of all barbarous peoples, these divas and asuras became the basis of a sort of fairy lore. And the above is all the religion that the Aryans had previous to their contacting the highly civilized Nagas. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now the claim is fairy lore is based upon these principles of divas and asuras. That these ideas... are the personification of these forces. And they're often told in fairy stories by barbarous peoples, they claim. So what do they think about us? Because fairy lore has permeated all cultures through all times. Now, do they see you as being a barbarous person? Well, they refer to you as the profane. You don't understand these forces you're dealing with. That's their attitude towards it. And some of them claim to have better understanding of these forces. And of course they're claiming that this race of the civilized Nagas seem to have understood something more than these Aryans did, but this was what the Aryan culture had established at that point. So they fall very much in line with what we've been taught in mainline history about some of these more primitive cultures, the things they did, how they worshipped the sun and they worshipped nature. And they didn't understand anything transcendental, anything higher in the symbolism But I, like I said, I don't think that really truly stands to reason. This is just the paintbrush that the secret society groups and the secret schools have painted certain groups of people with. And I'm sure there's reasons for that. I don't know if we'll get that far into this kind of a way of thinking tonight. But certainly, we can already see some inherent biases at play here when they're referring to some of these other groups of people that seem to have been populating portions of Asia and Europe during this time frame, and of course Africa as well. When we go back and we look at what we discussed here in the earlier episodes of this series, how these cultures, these descendants of the Mayas settled in these certain regions, and of course they encountered some other groups of people there, other races that were not quite as evolved as them, spiritually speaking, and they intermingled with them and intermarried with them. And we have the same sort of thing going on here, except there seems to be a lot 
more heavy-handed type of a bias towards this particular group for some reason. But let's continue on, because as you listen, I think you'll begin to connect some dots. <clears throat> At the same time, it is to be borne in mind that they conceived of the moon as the feminine counterpart of the sun, and to it was given the name of Soma. And the Soma worship was nothing more or less than the adoration of moonlight as the gestative principle of the earth life. Also, they worshipped death under the name of Yama. If thou shouldst listen to the modern descendants of those Aryan barbarians, they will make thee believe that the Vedas are the embodiment of all wisdom, past, present, and to come. Just what are the Vedas? The Rig Veda is the ritual for the worship of these mundane gods. The second Veda is the ritual for the Soma sacrifice, that is, the sacrifice to deified moonshine. The Yajur Veda, or the third of these holy Vedas, is the ritual for the working of practical magic. And the fourth, or Atharva Veda, is the ritual of black magic. The religious observances of the Aryans consisted entirely in the practice of magic, and the more magic power one had, irrespective of how he obtained it, or what he did with it, the greater was the measure of his saintliness. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, now we can begin to see where some of the bias plays in. So now this is the claim that this Aryan race, their entire force of worship, or their entire focus of worship, was essentially in the practice of magic. So I hope some dots are starting to connect for you here. So the Aryans were practicers of black magic, as it claims here. Let's go ahead and continue on. We'll see what else shakes out in this next portion. Austerities were universally practiced not for the overcoming of the carnal instincts, as they were by some of the philosophical Nagas, but frankly for the obtaining of supernormal powers in a magical sense. The result was the development of tapas, or the practice of austerities as a means of acquiring powers which were to be used for the gratification of the vanity of the yogi who possessed them. One of the tapas grew the idea of Vedic karma, or the acquiring of merit through ritual observation, which frankly meant the wonder-working power of magic, which would enable the ascetic to dominate the gods. And as they were merely mundane forces, this was quite possible to the trained mind and will. These saints were merely the devotees of natural and ceremonial magic, and that is the only religion taught in the Vedas, all claims of Hindus, liars, to the contrary notwithstanding. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now you see this inherent attitude toward a lot of this Hindu teaching, or a lot of these Eastern teachings by some of these folks within 
these fraternities. And you have to wonder, why has Indian and Eastern mysticism been so heavily in, adopted in the New Age circles? Yet you have to wonder, why has that been allowed? Well, in my estimation, I think it's to keep people off the path. And it's to keep people focused in directions that not only lead them astray, but lead them directly into this type of a state, as is being spoken of here. Now, was this really what this group of people were involved with? I can't say for sure. I wasn't there. But this is certainly not something you've probably ever been taught anywhere. It's not something that largely gets talked about in these types of circles of esoteric knowledge. A lot of people hold these Eastern teachings in extremely high regard. So imagine, imagine finding teachings like this now at the highest most echelons of some of these secret schools they don't really have much of a respect for some of the eastern traditions you see they think it's a lesser type of tradition that it's just an exoteric form of teaching some of these more esoteric ideas and they think people have largely been misconstruing the teachings in a real physical sense. And they do so out of seeking for power, for supernormal, supernatural, magical power. And the road that that leads to is always, surely, a road to destruction. Now, here's the thing. I don't have the answers to any of this. I don't know. I'm just reading to you what it is that they teach to those high-level initiates in their orders about these things. So they have this view of some of these Eastern principles as being barbaric, as being not as highly spiritually evolved as some of the Western esoteric teachings. Now, is that the case? I don't necessarily think so myself. But this is exactly what they teach, and this is what they believe. And if these are the people that are truly in charge in this world, well, look at how many of these Eastern philosophies have run rampant in Western culture in recent years, especially within the occult circles and within the entertainment circles. Well, this would suggest that they have purposely unleashed these things on Western culture to keep man's mind trapped to keep man's spirit trapped in this lower vibratory state. 
if you want to look at it from the perspective of the secret schools. That's what that suggests. Now, like I said, is it correct? I don't think it's really correct. But this is their perspective. So even those who would claim to be spiritually evolved, these teachers, these gurus, these mystics, the ones that they push out there in the circles of rock and roll and entertainment, these ones that have achieved pop culture status, they were put there for the sole purpose of keeping man's mind and spirit dumbed down. and seeking and grasping after straws that they could never truly attain. And when you understand just how deep the deception runs and how deep the manipulation runs, it's staggering. Now, do I think everybody who was ever involved in these secret groups and stuff were evil and had ill will and ill intention? Not necessarily. I think there were some good folks who tried to work for the good of things. But see, the problem with a lot of this stuff is the ones who misuse and abuse some of the principles, they've aligned themselves with others with similar interests and agendas, and they are much more organized than the good ones out there trying to do what is right And in that way, we've had so much inversion and twisting of some of the old teachings that we can't make heads or tails out of it anymore. It's been so turned on its head as to be the complete inversion process. And that's what we have in these modern occult movements and these modern secret society groups. At their very core, that's what it is, the inversion principle. Now, I think there's good people that get involved in these groups, and they don't necessarily see that that's what they've been working towards. They truly and earnestly think they're doing good. But are they doing good? That's the other question. But anyway, that's enough of a little bit of a diatribe about that. Let's get back to this teaching. So keep that in mind now. Now we see... There's this inherent bias against this group of people. And you can draw some conclusions based upon that about things that have happened in the midpoint of the 20th century here. And perhaps what was really going on behind the scenes. We've heard stories about these occult ties within the SS and within some of these other parties associated with the Reich and how they were searching for certain artifacts and things like this and they were fascinated with these especially these eastern cultures and artifacts now remember this book that we're reading from predates all of that So who knows what was the true purpose behind all of that searching? 
did they go back and attempt to rewrite history? Well, it's an interesting thought, but I don't know if the evidence is truly quite there. But let's go ahead and read on here. These barbarians came in contact with the highly cultured Nagas, and in the course of time the Naga influence was manifested in their religion until in the course of time there was developed a very philosophical religion, the tenets of which are to be found in the Upanishads. Their leader, who brought them into India, who is the historical background of the myth of Manu, devised a system of laws that are the origin of the laws of Manu, and the adoption of that code was the first step in the direction of civilization. Shortly after their entrance into India, they began a relentless war on the civilized Nagas. After this war had gone on for a time, Rama appeared upon the scene. Rama was the spiritual leader of the Aryans who for the first time introduced ethics into their philosophy of life. Previous to his epoch, they thought of nothing but Vedic karma, but from this time they began to accept the validity of a moral life in theory, though they have never put it into practice. We have some very quaint statements in the Ramayana which will bear observation. It will be well here to try and fix the period of Rama. He was born at the time of the horse sacrifice. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. The horse sacrifice. I don't know if you could remember, but I've talked about the symbol of the horse many times in the past, how it's important. And when you're speaking of the equestrian class, this is code. When they're referring to the horse, or something relating to the horse or the equestrian class, there's a connotation here. There's a deeper meaning here. So now they're talking about this period of Rama. They're saying Rama was born at the time of the horse sacrifice. Let's read on and see what else he has to say about the horse sacrifice. The horse in the Indian Zolak is the same as the lamb in others. I think that's supposed to be Zodiac, folks. My apologies. <laughs> the horse in the Indian Zodiac is the same as the lamb in others. That is, it is the sign of Aries. I'm going to pause for a moment here. Now I think we're hitting some pay dirt as far as symbology goes. Aries. Well, where do you think the term Aryan came from? And of course, the horse. And if you followed any of the other stuff I've been talking about in the past, when it comes to the horse, the equestrian class, all of these different notions, it's a reference to Kabbalah, the phonetic Kabbalah. Spelled with a C, Kabbalah. Because if you go into some of the Romance languages that are derived from Latin, Caballa, Caballo is horse in Spanish. Caballero is cowboy in Spanish. The horse. There's an association here, and this goes way deeper. 
than just the words on the page here. This is a subtext within the text. This is not something most people will be able to pick out on a, an exoteric reading of this. But now we're hitting some pay dirt because now Dr. Raleigh is telling us some useful information here that we can tie back to some older cultures. And let's see where this trail now leads. So the horse in the Indian zodiac is the same as the lamb and others. That is, it is the sign of Aries. The horse sacrifice was to celebrate the vernal equinox in Aries. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So springtime, the sacrifice of the horse in the springtime, or the lamb and other systems, Aries. This occurred 2433 B.C., and hence the period of Rama was some time subsequent to that date. This would place him some 600 years after the Aryan invasion, if not later still. We are told that Rama broke into the limelight as a protector of the Rishis. That is to say, when they went to sacrifice to the gods, the devils assailed them and scattered the sacrifices and the fire in every direction, so that they could not succeed in making the sacrifice. At last, one of them called upon Rama to come to their aid. He went, and in the first encounter slew several of the devils and dispersed the rest. Now what do you know about that? The idea of one man killing several devils and dispersing a whole crowd of them single-handed? The facts in the case are, those devils were men. They were fanatical Nagas who were enraged at the heathen rites of the Aryan shaman and determined to prevent the sacrifice. In plain language, they were a mob of overzealous partisans of the true religion. Rama, being a soldier and well-armed, and as these zealots were not armed, he butchered a considerable number of them, and the rest fled for their lives. This is the inside of that devil killing on the part of Rama. They were called devils by the Aryan barbarians because they were the enemies of their heathen rites. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're being offered a very physical world explanation for a mythological story, a mythical story. And of course, I think what was being pointed out here in talking about the horse sacrifice, this notion, when we opened up that portion talking about the horse sacrifice, this is a type of a cue for anybody who understands who's reading this that this is not a literal meaning that's being presented here so when they're telling you he's telling you here that this myth about Rama slaying these devils and dispersing the rest that this was just the story of him fighting these these enraged mob of the Naga people. This is not a literal in a literal sense what the story is about. There's hidden meaning and context in here. Now what exactly that is 
I don't know if I could pull it all out on one reading without further delving back into the story. I'm not as familiar with some of these Eastern mythological teachings and stories than I am with more of the Western culture ones. So I would have to dig a little deeper, but he's giving you this very physical world explanation here of a myth. Demystifying it, if you will. But he told you at the outset, with that mention of the horse bit, that that's not what you should be focused on. That you have to follow the etymological meanings of some of these terms that are talked about in this physical story that he's given you now. And that's how you connect the dots and find the true hidden meaning behind it. But I don't want to belabor that point, because you see, oftentimes with books like this and with texts like this, even though it's written in plain language, ostensibly here, they still never put some of the more truly important esoteric points in a type of format where you're going to pick up on it right away or you're going to directly understand it. They're never direct with many of these explanations of symbolic things. But they will give you context clues. Like I said, he opened that portion talking about the horse. Inferring the Kabbalah, the phonetic Kabbalah, which means we have to follow the root words back to see what's the real story here with Rama and the ousting of these devils or demons, Ashuras. So there's a whole lot more context there that we're not going to get to tonight because, like I said, it's something I would have to delve a bit deeper into. But I've gotten pretty good at finding when they put a key into some of their texts to point to it in another direction for you. I got good at picking out that bit. This is where you begin to understand how they hide a lot of information in plain sight. This is one of the tools they use. Even within their own books, like I said, they'll never put it plainly on the page for you. They'll beat around the bush with it. And it's kind of like an inside joke. Either you get it or you don't. And in this case, I don't really get it, but I do understand in the context clues, he's telling me, hey, there's something here. This is not the literal interpretation of this story that you need to really take. But you need to delve deeper and look into the etymological roots of some of what's being said here to get to the real meaning, so... But aside from that, let's get back to this alleged historical context now that we have. The whole of the Ramayana is nothing more nor less than a history of the war of extermination which Rama and his barbarian host waged against the cultured Nagas in Ceylon. Ravina was not a devil, but a man, and the Naga king of Ceylon. It is very singular that a devil should become enamored of a woman. 
but quite plausible that a man who was an oriental despot should fall in love with her and should see no reason why he should not take unto himself the wife of a barbarian and a heathen. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now pay close attention. Because like I said, I think even this part now, this is not how you're supposed to literally interpret this. You see, for those outsiders... Or those that don't understand, he's giving you this physical, real-world, plausible explanation for this. Well, these were just people. These myths, they're about people, you see. And this is the true nature of it. And he's telling you the story. But he's telling you this tongue-in-cheek. Because there's some deeper symbolism hidden here. Now let's go ahead and we'll continue where we just left off. Because now... They're going to mention something that maybe you've heard a little something about before. Hanuman, the monkey king, was simply the king of a tribe of Aryans who had the monkey as their totem, and his army was the monkey gens of the Aryans. I'm going to pause for a moment here. Monkey. So the Aryans are related to the monkey. Now this is a bit of a side trail and a side tangent, and maybe some of you don't connect the dots in the same way I do. But we've mentioned in the past, and we've looked at, this notion of what's called the RH factor in the blood typing of people. So if the Aryan race has the monkey gene... They would be the RH positives. And then those who are not of the Aryan race would be RH negative. Are you following what I'm putting down for you? Is that why these elites in this world are obsessed with their family trees and with their bloodlines? Is that why there exists even within these occult groups, this fascination with RH factor in blood typing? Is there a connection here? Seems plausible, and of course they give you the monkey king. The monkey king. And at the same token, they'll also tell you that we evolved from monkeys in the Darwinian evolution explanation of things. And this is the connotation that they've applied to those that they see as being of the Aryan bloodline. Now, when you take all of this into consideration and you look at the RH type and you look at many of these other factors in our world and how these things play together how these elitist families and this ruling class that we have these dark occultists who run things how they are super fascinated with genealogy with family bloodlines with all of these things and you take all that into consideration and you look at their attitude towards us whom they view as the profane 
as the ones who are not the blue bloods, and I assure you there's a connection with that and this RH factor as well. Then you begin to understand things, and then maybe you can see what were some of the occult underpinnings behind this narrative we were handed as to what happened during World War II. I'll let you ponder upon that for a little bit. But let's continue on here. So, the Monkey King was simply the king of a tribe of Aryans who had the monkey as their totem, and his army was the monkey gens, or family line, of the Aryans. He was not in reality a king at all, but simply the head of that gens, or family. It's gens spelled G-E-N-S, and that's an old Greek, or is it Roman, I'm not sure, or a Romanized version of the Greek term talking about a family bloodline. The bigotry of the barbarians, as usual, caused them to multiply this war over the possession of a woman into a religious war between the incarnation of God and the king of the devils. But stripped of all its trappings, the above is exactly what took place. After a time, a much more spiritual condition was entered upon by the Aryans. They grew, and overcoming the Nagas, plagiarized their civilization without mercy. Finally... We come down to the time of Krishna. By this time, the barbarians had conquered enough of the Naga territory to have contacted the culture of the peaceful Nagas and to have incorporated a great deal of it. We have now the development of the Vishnu cultus. Vishnu was the direct plagiarization of the heart of heaven, at least as the heart that thinks. Primordial ideation going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, of course, if you if you are lost there, this is referring back to these Mayan traditions that we talked about in the first several episodes here, how this traces back once again to the Mayan culture and then further back even to the Atlantean culture before that. So Vishnu is a plagiarization, according to this, of the heart of heaven, that doctrine or the heart that thinks that primordial ideation spoken of in those older cultures. Also, the Buddha doctrine was plagiarized and transformed into the doctrine of the avatars of Vishnu. The trinity of the heart that thinks, the mouth that speaks, and the eyes that see was changed into the trimurti of Brahma, the creator, Shiva, the destroyer, and Vishnu, the preserver. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So here we have this trinity and all of these things that we're a little more familiar with. Vishnu, Brahma, Shiva, in the Indian culture and Indian pantheon. These are all said to be derived from these Mayan traditions. Same symbols, just with a different face upon them. And he's claiming they were plagiarized. Now, this is a strong word. Because, you see, 
it's pretty well established that a lot of these same motifs or same types of commonalities or spiritual truths, spiritual doctrines, they transcend through all different times and cultures. And you wouldn't necessarily call it plagiarizing, one of them plagiarizing one from another. But it denotes a negative connotation towards this, that in some way it's been perverted. And maybe the author here is not wrong about that to some degree or another. But it was likely perverted from before that time as well. But let's continue on. So it says, this was, of course, the corruption of the original doctrine, as the true trinity is not of the three aspects of a principle all on one level, but rather the manifestation of one and the same principle on three levels. Durga was made the consort of Shiva, and in this way was elevated to the spiritual plane, and thus losing all of her cosmic meaning, was in the course of time transformed into Kali, the Bloody Mother. Thus, that which had at one time been a cosmic truth became in time a spiritual ideal. However, down to the epoch of Krishna, Vedic karma held full sway, although ethical conduct was recognized as desirable from the time of Rama. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now, we're seeing the distillation of spiritual truths into spiritual ideals. So something's been lost in translation here. And in the incremental steps taken, some of the original spiritual foundations have been inverted. I don't think he's wrong about that analysis here. Something was perverted here. But the problem is, how many times was it perverted down the line before even getting to this time, this epoch of Krishna? Let's continue on. The work of Krishna was twofold. He lived in the time of the Great War, which had already been raging for over a thousand years, and therefore he sided with his people, the Aryan barbarians, and aided in the crushing out of the last remnant of the Naga power. He was also at war with the Naga religion, and with Arjuna waged relentless war upon the Quetzalcoatl cultus. It is that stage of the war that was going on at the time that the Bhagavad, Bhagavad Gita was written. Excuse me, couldn't pronounce that for a second. Krishna was also engaged in the reformation of the Aryan religion. His breaking the ba the ba excuse me, let me start that sentence again. Little tongue tied tonight, folks. His breaking the bow of Rudra was in reality the abolishing of the cultus of sun worship. There is in reality a very great deal of history in the Mahabharata and in the Puranas if one can dig it out from the mass of mythology. 
It is the history of the conquest of the philosophic Nagas by the Aryan barbarians and the final incorporation of the Naga civilization into the Hindu superstitions, which was in reality the means of giving a real religion to those barbarians and also of making a civilized people out of them. After the amalgamation of the two races and the confusion of the Naga religion and civilization with the barbarism of the Aryans, there began a period of real culture for the Aryans, which period developed the body of Upanishad literature. Krishna, in reality, marked the beginning of religion among the Aryan Hindus, and about a thousand years before the age of Buddha Sakyamuni, they had become a civilized people. Shortly after the Aryan Hindus invaded the Naga kingdom of India, the Iranians came down from their Bosnian home and invaded the Naga kingdom of Persia, where after a long period of time, they succeeded to a great extent in dominating the Nagas. But the Sakia clan, both in India and Persia, have in the majority of cases preserved their Naga blood from contamination by any intermixture with that of the Aryan barbarians down even to the present time. And I'm going to pause right there for a moment, because that's actually the end of the book. And I think it's extremely timely with the events going on in the world today. You see, if you pay attention, there seems to be this bolstering of conflict with Iran. Iran. Now, if you understand the Iranian people... They don't view themselves as being Arabs, as most of the world misconstrues that. And this is hugely important to that culture. They see themselves, they view themselves as Persians, not as Arabs, and they don't identify with that. They are Persian. Now... This makes for some interesting connections on the world stage today, and it makes for some interesting connections on the world stage throughout the history of the 20th century here as well. Especially when you begin to look at the convoluted ways in which, under Hitler's Germany, the Nazi Party, and some of the secret society groups that worked within the internal machinations of the militarized forces within were obsessed with these occult ideas and with searching for occult artifacts, especially those of the Indian or Persian persuasion. Looking for these artifacts, looking for these esoteric and occult clues all over the world, trying to find some of these connections to the past and why is it that the German people or at least this group within Germany would believe themselves to be descendants of this Aryan race 
why the importance thereof? Why were they completely obsessed with some of the things put forward by Madame Blavatsky and theosophy? You see, what had been done is a lot of these old Eastern traditions, they got amalgamated with some of these Western occult traditions, and it became so muddled and convoluted that this is the kind of stuff that they came up with and believed. Now, is there some air of truth to some of it? Perhaps. I don't claim to know. But you also have this coming from these important resources within these occult fraternities, within these secret society groups. And these are the kinds of things they acted upon. And remember, this book we're reading from predates World War II. This was written in 1916. But many of these ideas are likely what took hold in some of those secret society groups surrounding Nazi Germany. And these were probably the things they were looking for verification and validation for. And this would also explain why the animosity between some of these groups and some of the other groups and who's in the right here? Who could say for sure? I don't think when it comes to wars or conflicts, especially of that magnitude, that anybody's on the right or anybody's in the right. Especially when you understand all of these things are usually promulgated by a very small faction of people who have vested interested interests in certain outcomes. And by and large, doesn't benefit the bulk of the people ever when we have escalations of wars and battles and conflicts like that. And oftentimes it leads to egregious acts and egregious harms to great numbers of people who had nothing to do with it didn't want anything to do with it or be involved with it, but they are the casualties in these types of things. And sometimes, sometimes a lot of this could be tied back to some of these philosophical teachings of these occult fraternities and secret society groups. And this has everything to do with who has the divine right to rule. Who has the appropriate bloodline? Who has conquered the appropriate bloodlines in the past? So we have this interesting juxtaposition when you look at the events of World War II and the, the stories were told about this, especially about the occult connotations within Nazi Germany, within the Nazi party itself that they were interested in, ostensibly or allegedly. When you begin to view it through this lens of observation, you begin to understand a little bit more 
about what were some of the occult reasons behind the scenes that some of this stuff was led to play out how it did. And then we look at the world today, and we can see right now, today, in the background, quietly, behind the veil, that the masses, by and large, don't ever get a glimpse at, you have these occult concepts running in the background once again, and it always seems to align with many of these same ways of thinking. Who has the divine right to rule? Who is the real ruling class here? Who are the true descendants of the master race, whatever they view that master race as being? And I think that's the distinction here. I think the whole notion of the pushing of the Nazi narrative in World War II and the Aryan race narrative with that. I think that was intended to lead people off the trail. You see, according to what we just read here in the secret schools, if you are of this Aryan race, you're not the master race at all. This is not the race that was more spiritually evolved, according to these people. These were the barbarians. They were led by the monkey king, Hanuman. The monkey. Do you see the derogatory type of nature of this? And do you see the connection to the RH factor in blood? The rhesus factor? Rhesus, named after the rhesus macaque. A monkey. So this is the inversion principle being pushed once again. But having been weaponized against the masses... to get them off the trail here as to who it is that really believes that they are the master race of this place, and it's not the Aryans. And I'm not going to go ahead and try to name who this master race would be. You could use your imagination, use some common sense, You can make your own discernment on that. I don't have the answers, nor do I claim to know. But I see some of the obvious implications in information like this. Especially looking at it through the lens of the 20th century history that we have. It's an interesting way of thinking, for certain. And there's so many connotations that could be garnered from something like this. But of course, this is left open-ended for us with this book now. Because he leaves off here, like I said, 
that there are still people of this Naga bloodline that hasn't been contaminated that exist up until today, this point. The writing of that book being 1916, and I'm sure that's probably true today still as well. The Nagas. This would be your master race. And then you have to tie in all of this ideology that's been put forward about the Nagas. What's the true nature of the Nagas? Well, according to this, it's a race of people with an uncontaminated bloodline that were the direct descendants down through time of the Mayan culture, who were the direct descendants of the Atlantean culture. But if you go digging into the rabbit holes in greater conspiracy culture, and you begin to look back at some of the stories, once again, we have this connotation of the Nagas as we opened up this show as being a humanoid reptilian race. And you could tie this back to ufology and to a lot of other things. Now, is there an air of truth to this? Possibly. Is there something more to it? Possibly. Are we being told the truth about any of it? <laughs> Certainly not. One thing we can know for sure. We're not being told the truth. If somebody really knows, they're not telling. And I think this is about as close to a type of disclosure to that effect as we're going to get. So we're told in the plain text of the book that the Nagas... Well, this was just a race of human beings, race of people, a spiritually evolved race of people. This would be contiguous with what you would call the real master race today. And this Aryan bloodline, not so much. That's the opposite. They were barbarous. Do you see the, the brush that this has been painted with? Now, is this true? I can't say that it is. I always got to caution you with these things. You have to take this stuff with a grain of salt. There's no way of being able to vet this out truly and accurately. There's no way to know these things for certain. But this is what has been presented to many people at the highest, most echelons of these secret society groups and these occult fraternities. This is some of the hidden knowledge of the ages that they claim to keep. The secret history they claim to be the only ones that have access to. And they are obsessed with separating out these various classes of people based upon what they would call terms of evolution. One's more evolved than another. One sub-race is more evolved than another. This has been the notion that's crossed all the bounds of these secret society groups and mystery schools for ages untold now. They believe that certain people are more spiritually evolved than others. 
And I shouldn't, I should even probably negate the term spiritually out of that, because it's mutated into something beyond just spiritual evolution now, as was the original intent of the teaching. Now they've tried to make it manifest in a physical type of a way. And this whole idea was introduced with the science of eugenics, upon which Darwinian evolution is based. Doubt it not. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. And it all ties back to these occult ways of thinking. Once again, doubt it not. It's always there. Wish it wasn't. Sound like a broken record. Wish that was not the case, but it always, always, always invariably ties back to the occult. Always. And like I said, if you look to the foreseeable future as to what the outcome of these ties back to the occult are, they always seem to come to fruition in the ideals of transhumanism. Never fails with all of it. And when you go back and you're able to delve into the secret history here as handed us by the Hermetic Brotherhood, you see how the ideas align. So whether it's true or not, ladies and gentlemen, that makes no difference. Because you see, there are people in positions of power in this world who believe this is true. And the things they do to act upon their beliefs in this will affect all of us. So even if it is nonsense, there's people with a lot of influence in this world that act upon these types of principles. That's why it's important that we know what they know so we can understand what is their modus operandi. What's their motivation? Why do they do the things they do? Why? How do they do the things they do? What outcomes are they looking for? And it always comes down to this division between people. You see, they believe that there's a superior class and an inferior class, the ruling class and the ruled class, and that you're little more than an animal to be used and abused by them because they are spiritually superior. That's their belief. They're more evolved than you. And therefore, they have the divine right to rule over you. Treat you much like livestock. After all, you are a human resource. Did you ever wonder where those terms come from? Why do you think these major corporations have human resources departments? Really? HR departments. Human resource. You're a commodity. They believe in some of these teachings and in some of these secret society groups, they actually believe you don't even have a soul unless you join one of their occult fraternities and become initiated. And then, only then, can you build a soul. You don't have a soul. So if you don't have a soul, you're little more than an animal. To be used how they see fit. That's their attitude, their mentality. 
that's what they believe. That's why it makes little difference to them how much harm is brought upon other people. They don't see it as being problematic because of their beliefs in these types of notions. And that is what's at the root of racism and every other ism that we have in this world. Racism, classism, sexism, you name it. Any type of an ism. It's all based upon this same underlying archetype that they've developed here. They believe that there's somebody, one class of people is better than another for some reason. They're more evolved, you see. And they think that because they're more evolved, that they are somehow better than you and have the right to rule over you and do as they see fit. They're somehow superior. And like I said, this has been weaponized in the modern era in the form of eugenics. They've been able to translate it into a real, physical, material world type of a notion and a science in which they could objectively do certain things and measure certain outcomes. And that's what the true purpose of the invention of Darwinian evolution was for. Eugenics. And by the way, just as a casual aside, if you've been listening for any length of time, you've probably heard me say this before. Transhumanism has been described by pro-transhumanists as, quote, eugenics without coercion, end quote. They acknowledge it. That's how hubristic these people have become. And a lot of people just dance to the tune of the puppet masters who steer them in this direction, just cluelessly going along and trusting the science. There's no science to it, ladies and gentlemen. Scientific method has largely been thrown out the window with modern science. It was supposed to be a method of observation. A method for learning, observing, measuring, cataloging. But all of that criteria goes out the window when they hand you a theory And then they hold up that theory at every expense. And they develop things like the peer review process to uphold consensus reality, whatever they want consensus reality to be. And they simply defund or throw out anything that doesn't align with what they call the accepted consensus. And this is the problem with modern peer review. It doesn't challenge ideas. All it does is reinforce existing theories. And that's all that gets funding. 
is anything that reinforces existing theories that they want to be the consensus theory for a thing. And anything that contradicts that gets buried. And it's all done by funding. Who's funding the research? You produce what your benefactor wants if you want your paycheck to keep rolling in. That's how it works. That's modern science, folks. You do what the guy who writes your your funding check wants you to do. And that's the bottom line. You show the results they want shown. That's a that's a whole show for another day though. That's kind of veering a bit from the subject here tonight. But as we can see, this whole notion of the Aryan invasion, they've painted this type of people with a broad paintbrush that puts them in a very negative view. The negative connotation attached to it. And of course, we see what 20th century history has handed us as to this notion. And that being the case, it's totally the inversion principle pushed in your face in order to promote the agendas of a very small group of people at the top of this power structure here. These dark occultists who run things and what they believe about themselves and about who we are. And they laugh all the way to the bank with a lot of these things. They've handed you this history now. Where you associate even the term itself with something that it wasn't never intended to be. You see, going back to the root word of Aryan, it goes, talks about, it's derived from Aries, the zodiological sign, the sign of the horse in the Indian zodiac. Remember, this is an esoteric clue to something deeper. That's not really who these people were, these barbarians. That's not what the stories were about. That's not what the myths were really about. But you gotta delve a little deeper to get to what the true symbolism truly means underlying it all. But rest assured, we've been deceived, we've been lied to. These people believe in a totally different history than what we've been handed in our history books. And they act upon that history. That's the bottom line with all of this. And now maybe you know something you didn't know before. And maybe the dots start to connect a little better for you. I hope that's the case. Anyway, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.
Sydney.